Her magical words whispered on the winds to ageist beauty throughout their centuries. Elves have always piqued the interest of those on all mortal planes. I'm Mo. And I'm Austin. And today we discuss the elven pantheon known as the Saladrin. And welcome back to Dungeons and Brews, everyone. As always, with me is Mo. Special episode time, Brewmaster Austin. It is indeed a special episode, and we have to be honest with the poll. It was a four-way tie between the Saladrin, which is what we're discussing today, uh, the Dwarven Pantheon, uh, continuing our dive into the Nine Hells, as well as some subclass. So we did a roll off screen um, and assigned numbers to everything and it came up that we are going to be doing the Saladrin to break the tie. So we're going to dive into one of the more expansive pantheons in the D&D verse but before that get ready for a long episode but you're right before that here Brewmaster Austin. And I'm going to have... cut him off because he wasn't even ready for what I was about to say Dice Battle! Already? Dice Battle. Oh no, I made I a presumption. To... My presumption was wrong. I have to keep you on your toes. Oh my goodness. For I the lead. It. All right, for the lead. And the king of the castle. Natural one. Four. Okay, I just got to roll over a you four. You just got to roll over a just four. Just got to roll, roll over, over a four. four. Eight. Eight. <laughs> and with that, Mo takes a five-four lead. And the gods have corrected their error. The, the gods <laughs> not favor you. They all favor me indeed. But... I am one of them after all. <laughs> As always, though, before we get into our uh, bonus episode topic, we do have a brew in quotes to review. And Mo, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about? You are this. the one who picked this, yeah. though, so it is. I'm actually very interested by it, and it kind of fits considering we are traveling to the upper plains today here. But we are going with I Ace California Ace Imperial Apple Cider. It's called uh, Imperial Apple Cider High. Yeah, it's called the Ace High Cider. So Ace High Cider. Yeah. I guess there's an entire series. So the imperial, the, the imperialness of it, you know, kind of giving that sort of pantheon elven highness to you it. You could tell what Brewmaster Austin was thinking, everyone, when he picked this one. Also, it's 8% alcohol, y'all. <laughs> All right, let's give this thing a shot. Ready? Yep. Three, two, one. And... We had to take a brief moment after opening those because both of the ciders were so excited about talking about the Saladrin today that they uh, kind of spilled over and we had to make sure none of the equipment got wet. My legs are soaked. <laughs> but I have been able to take a sip of it. I have yet to try time. it. Hang on. Let's double check this thing. It's 8% alcohol. It's 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 a sour. Yeah, it's, it's very it's sour. Very, right? It's uh, almost not even sour. It's like tartness to it. It's like at the finish of it, there's a little bit of... Uh, little bit of tartness but it is it is very good it is very good um you know all things considered despite the fact that mo and i doused ourselves it's everywhere everybody <laughs> i'm gonna smell like apple cider for the next week at this point i love it i love it but uh with that and now that our uh our brew review even though it took a little bit longer in reality than what you're probably hearing <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> let's talk 
the Celedrin. And so first thing that I want to address, because I know I'm going to get somebody messaging me. Some people call it the Celedrin. I go with Celadrin because there is a race of elves known as the Aladrin. Ah, and so yeah. similar similar pronunciation. So rather than giving it that sort of Erin uh, name to it, I go with the similar pronunciation. But yes, for those of you who do not know, the Elven Pantheon is called the Celadrin uh, or the Celadrin, depending on who you ask. Uh, but the Celadrin it all is the Elvish word for the fellowship of brothers and sisters of the wood. So you can see how it very much holds itself to a Tolkien-esque view of elves and nature, that they are tied together, that there is some sort of fellowship among all elves, whether they be high elves, wood elves, that sort of thing. They all draw from the same point in time. Do they... Does that include like the drow? Does that include yes. since they are okay? So it's all basically so all we elves will, are derived. We are going to go okay. into it, but the drow are were technically on the same plane. So what I want to address first is the elven pantheon resides on Aravandor. It is a one of the upper uh, in the upper plains. Um, it is on the Great Wheel uh, of uh, what was the overarching plane you mentioned earlier. Um, oh, the upper planes in general. Yeah, the so, upper yeah. planes in general. It, it's but what's it on the wheel? It's on um, Ar Arvindor, uh, Aboria, Aboria, uh, Aboria. Excuse yeah, me. It's the first Aboria. layer. Of Aboria. My bad. It's yep, the first layer. Of Aboria. Me. Yep. But it is a. It is also known as the High Forest. It is yep. a expansive land of forests and grasslands and greenery and rivers. It is. It very much fits, like I said, into the Tolkien-esque view of elves where they live in these pristine cities that are almost congregated with nature. So Aravandor is the realm, and this expanse of pristine wilderness is adorned by divinely colored streams that are sometimes this bright blue, other times crystal clear. Uh, massive scenic mountains, uh, forests brimming with life, and the legends state that the beauty of the realm alone is enough to to turn any non-elven creature mad. And that so includes another, half elves. So it's another. It's another. Uh, we talked about this in one of our previous episodes, but we talked about how certain layers of whether it was the nine hells or the abyss or the the far realm uh, and things like that, that it could drive a creature onto that madness chart. So again. This right. is where that comes into play. This, the very environment is enough to go. Right. And the madness in, in this one is described more as like dancing jubilation sort of madness, not the madness that we kind of referenced in the Nine Hells of the Abyss uh, episode. But <clears throat> with that, these um, sprawling forests don't contain any clear divisions. So even though all of these various elven deities, and there's a long list, as Mo can attest, our DM one pager on this had to be two, simply because I Wait, have. You guys check it out. We'll, we will post it here at the end of this one because again, this will probably be might be a two part episode, but we'll wait and see how you guys are feeling yeah, towards it. But yeah, it might this is so there are two greater gods. Uh, there are nine intermediate gods. There are eight lesser gods, and at least six demigods that are all listed as officially from D and D Wizard of the Coast content. And there are more that have either been either killed, morphed into other, you know, absorbed into other deities or or things like that. So 
the one thing that I want to um, address is that the Elven Pantheon differs greatly from our, in the physical, like actual world conceptions of deities, right? They, in their purest form, do not behold themselves to a gender or a sex. They often present themselves as one or the other. They can present themselves as a neutral sort of anthropomorphic sort of thing. They can present a ball of light a talking tree, it really depends on what they want. Yeah. Um, but that that sort of mutable form is a big point of the Elven Pantheon. But it's not just the Elven Pantheon, it's extended down to their children as well. Look at most elves. Mm. Most elves you, you would look at and you would say, I, I can't assign you a sex because I can't tell what sex you are. And that, right? that and actually, you, you without knowing too much about where I'm going with the episode, you've already yeah. addressed something that I will get into in a in a very big lore dump at the end, mm -hmm. but long story short, that that is a hypothetical or one of the theorized reasons for the Great War of the Saladrin that we'll talk about. Yes, of course. Um, it it, it more than Canaan is what he sort of ad adopts that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but the elves and the elven pantheon see the especially humans in D&D's focus on the gendered nature of their deities as a limiting factor in worship. Because no matter what, the elven deities see it as you are now attributing specific factors to me that I may not be beholden to simply because you see me as male or female. Yes. So that is part of their overwhelming sense of themselves, as well as the fact that they are a chaotic good uh, pantheon. Yeah, the, so it's again, it's very much intertwined into a, a much of like again a philosophy major I've discussed before, but it also comes into the fact that humans will always assign mortals in general. I'm going to be very clear here because again, I, we are talking about D and D, but mortals in general will assign sexes towards creatures of you know that they may deem of a higher existence right. than themselves. So this is a great, great prime example opportunity here to talk about that. And again. I say mortals because, guys, yes, elves live a very long time, but they are still considered mortal, right? Because they in do a, die in a sense. In, in a in a sense. sense. They so, do have a different a avenue. Essentially, yeah. what happens with elves, to the best of my understanding, and I did a lot of lore diving in here, but some of this is coming from other editions, so I had mm -hmm. to kind of piece it together. Um, Elves themselves, when they die, they do all travel to Aravandor. They do travel to where the Saladrin is, and they kind of reside there. But there is sort of a reincarnation aspect where the soul of the same elf would then be put back on the material on some plane, whether it's the material, the Feywild, wherever that elf is being born. So the souls of the elves are still always the souls of the elves, if that makes sense. You're not spawning a new soul. So it still exists. Right. Yeah. And that relates in part to the mythos that you were talking referencing vaguely earlier with Morden Canaan, which we'll talk about again later. Um, but or the elves themselves, their consciousness may not be mortal, but their soul themselves is reincarnated multiple times. So they do have some sense of immortality. Um <clears throat> but Aravandor itself used to belong to the uh, Ordning, um, which is the giant pantheon. They were actually exiled from there by the Elvish Pantheon. The Elvish, Elven Pantheon did not originally reside there um, and then kind of pushed the giant Pantheon out. And even with that sort of aggression against another Pantheon, the Elven Pantheon is basically almost completely insulated from attack. 
and what I mean by that is not that the portal, the plane themselves can't be attacked because it is, and I'll explain a little bit later, but that they have alliances with the Dwarven Pantheon, with Moradin there, um, with Garl Glittergold of the Gnomish Pantheon. Yeah, they've got, an, yeah. they've got an alliance with them too. The Halfling Pantheon, they've got an alliance with them too. There's also, they have a portal to the Faerunian Pantheon's realm in the, the House of Nature with Luthandar and Sylvanas and all those guys. So obviously if you've got a portal there, you're probably pretty close. Um, there's a few other Pantheon uh, portals that take them into other uh, other plates, like uh, Selun, the goddess of the moon. Um, she lives in Isgard, Is uh, a completely different realm, but they have a portal there to that specific deity. And again, you can kind of see, okay, they've kind of built connections and relationships so that if anyone were to attack them, you would essentially be attacking almost five or six different pantheons at once. I see here you also incorporated the fact that they have a connection towards Mistra as well. Yes. And the Weave, again, we just recently talked about this in our High Magic and Low Magic episode, but that is a huge, huge realization well, to, to know what's going on. And, there. So, and you bring up a very awesome connection here of High Elven mm -hmm. magic as well. That is actually a very important topic we didn't discuss on our uh, High Magic versus Low well, Magic. High Elven magic is in itself sort of uh, imaginary, it, especially in the role-playing game aspect. It's imaginary. Mm -hmm. So um, the connection with Mystria goes to um, Corleone or... Uh, Corellian, however you want to pronounce it, uh, he's the the big leader of the Saladrin. Um, he and Mistria have some sort of deal worked out where he does receive worship for Elven High Magic, and again, you know Mistria with the weave, and that Elven Elven High Magic High Magic, the best I can tell, is like a bump above ninth level spells. Is that what they're referencing? Is a magic that's sort of been cut off to the rest of casters because, and again, in an episode we can go on on Mystria, Mystria essentially prohibited. There used to be 10th level spells. I remember, I, I've read about cut, this. Yeah. Cut them that from existence. Magic used to exist beyond level nine, but it, they were so monumental and broken. And that's their nature. believed yeah. to be why Dark Sun is the way it is. Yeah. That's the real wow. kind of reason. And so Mystria has prevented that, but she has allowed uh, Corellian to have some sort of slight bump with the elven high magic um it's not it wasn't really clear on what exactly it is but you can reference it in the campaign to be like if you if you don't want your players to really know what this magical sense is is like elven high magic it's elven high it's, elven. it's unknown it's yeah. a, it's something that yeah. no one would be allowed to record because mystria would not allow that. yeah you can so, literally you can literally make it where mad things are disappearing because she's not allowing it yeah. exactly or exactly. they aren't yeah. allowing it so yeah. she gets uh that sort of she gives that to mm -hmm. him it's not not necessarily a Saladrin thing. It's because of his relationship with Mystria. He also is friends with like Azuth, which is a letter, lesser de deity of Arcane, and Sabaris, which is a divination uh, deity as well from like the Faerunian pantheon. So he makes some some extra friends outside of the general stuff, right? Um, in 
the plane itself of Aravandor, there are fae that live there. There are Aladrin, which are these kind of uh, elves that shift with the seasons. So in the summer, they might appear in more of a, you know, a bright green sort of thing. The fall, maybe a fiery red, a brown. Their mood can also affect them. I'm very familiar with Aladrin. So Aladrin can uh, literally shift based off their mood. Mm. I see that you've also included here the fact that drow are part of the, uh, I would say, the wildlife here. Yes. Well, I mean, based uh, under the fact, I mean, for most, for those of you that don't know, drow are basically elves that live underground. And they're basically, uh, excuse me, uh, they're basically way underneath of the ground here. We're talking, well, several miles underneath the ground. And they live uh, in the Underdark, in uh, the Faerun setting, that is. Mm -hmm. And I've incorporated them into my world and other D&D people have incorporated into theirs. They're very sensitive to sunlight as well, though. How is that working here? So I think this is actually, I know we've kind of danced on the topic a little bit. I think this would be a great spot to talk about the War of the Saladrin because it goes in, it depends on which mythology you subscribe to, right? So the War of the Saladrin is essentially a conflict that occurred between the elven pantheon itself, as well as some dissenters of the pantheon, other deities, like uh, I believe Grumsh is involved, and a, f uh, a few of the giant, um, the Ordning, some of those giant deities were involved as well. So there are two different mythoses, and I'm going to talk about both and then kind of address your your question about the drow and some of the other questions we brought up because it does, it's all interconnected with this. I can see that. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. let you take care of this. Wow, this, guys, I, we can, I cannot wait to show you guys this sheet. Definitely go check out the comment section here at the end of this. Uh, the uh, excuse me, the episode description. You will find a link towards our Google Drive. Wow, what you've created here, Austin. Go ahead. Yeah. So originally, the original mythos, and again, this is a kind of a boiled down version. I I did my best to summarize it into a couple paragraphs um, as possible. So, and I'm going to butcher the name, Arushni, and is a it was the original consort of Corleone, the original kind of marriage between the two, right? They have a son named uh, Verhum, um, and with the help of her son, she gathers a host of evil deities to oppose the Saladrin. So this is not only the giant deities, but Grumsh, as well as some of the unseelie court from the Fae. Mm. Because as um, you, if you look on the same page as the War of the Saladrin on our one-pager slash two-pager, uh, there is a goddess there, a number eight of the lesser gods. Would you uh, identify that one for us? Sarula. Of the uh, Sarula Elaine, goddess of the Nixies in water magic, arch fae, and who left the Seely Court. So you can see how there the Seely uh, Court is sort of the quote unquote good court in the fae, and a member of the Seely Court now moving to the Elven Pantheon would obviously make it a target for the enemies of the Seely Court, right? Which is the Unseely Court. So with all of these allies, right? gathered together against the Saladrin, Arushni is planning an attack on the, the realm in an attempt to overthrow Corleone. She had planned for the uh, assault to ultimately fail, though. So essentially, she wanted the deities to fight, kill all these, you know, some of these evil deities, maybe weaken the elven pantheon so that basically she could kill Corleone and assume the the place assume the place is the the lead of the Saladrin, right? That was her whole plan. So basically, she was going to betray both parties and take over, 
Yeah, she's playing a double agent. <clears throat> double agent, yeah. Right. And her daughter is Elastre. She is also tricked into this. So what happens, and I cut this out of the uh, one pager because it would have made the, the explanation would have been too long. What uh, Arushni's plan is, is that she is going to curse the scabbard of Corleone and that he won't be able to defend himself essentially, right? And that because of that, he will become wounded, he'll become weaker, and he'll be able to die. Okay, so this is starting to tie into, uh, I think it's coming up, Lolf, isn't it? Right. Yeah, it is coming up to it. Yeah, up to it, yes. yeah I, so I'm, I'm kind of familiar with a little bit up to this, uh, this right. mythos. Yeah. So it's coming up to it. So with that, this attack takes place and uh, Corleone is, in, is injured. He's unable to draw the scabbard. And part of this curse was that um, arrows fired from Elastray's bow would target him instead. Elastray did not know this. So she sees one of these evil deities attacking her father, fires arrows at it, right? And the arrows magically avert and then strike her Quite father, own, putting yeah. him almost basically to death, like yeah. almost killing him. Um, so she's tricked right then, right? Um, but however, there is some people that come to, uh, the sort of the, the, the save the day right for him, because it's not looking good. He's obviously, if he's obviously on, you know, death's door and all of these other deities, these other pantheons are sort of, you know, flying in to finally exact their revenge. You're like, this is not looking good. So a trio of Sahanin Mumbo, Aradine Fenyanya and I'm going to butcher this. Hanali Selan. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, join together and form a super deity. That super deity is known as Al Agnoranda. Agnoranda. Oh, the uh, elven naming yeah. theology. And oh, my God. So they, they basically trio form, and her symbol is really cool. It's actually three interlocked circles, so it always is paying homage to that. But with this joint power, she's able to heal him. Um, and after uh, you know healing him, obviously, they're able to sort of um, push back this offensive. Everything's kind of uncovered. And then there is sort of not necessarily a trial, but you know an investigation. They figure out, obviously, that uh, Arushni... Uh, and Varun are, you know, a part of this. They were kind of the main plotters of this. And he then banishes Arushni and turns her into a Tanari, which is a demon race. It's like yeah. the, the biggest demon race, like all the demon lords are of this, in the form of a spider, which then she takes on the name of Lolf. Yes. Yeah. So Lolf then... I'm familiar with that kind of her creation mythos. Yeah. yeah. So Lolf is banished. Uh, their son, Varun, was just simply exiled. I couldn't figure out why he was exiled only, even though he did willingly participate. I never really figured out what the the difference, why, Connection you know, to, right? You know, son, um, you know. And his daughter, Illustrate, was cleared of all guilt. However, she chose to stay with her mother and choose her mother's fate because it's kind of um, in the same time, Lolf, after being banished, um, takes over the dark Saladrin, which is the drow pantheon. Mm -hmm. um, and she becomes like the ruler of it in the D and she moves to the demon web pits, which is the 66 layer of the infinite layers of the abyss. Um, and she is very harsh on drow society. Very, very harsh. Um, yeah, yeah. Essentially she goes matricidal with it where, well, and the entire drow society is based around. Yeah. Uh, and so they basically rule. like 
that matriarch to the form of forming the patriarchy kind of thing. It's a matriarchy. Like they punish yeah. the males very severely. It's a very brutal society. If you guys, and you guys have heard me talk about this before. Go check out R.I. Salvatore's uh, uh, books of uh, the Driz Jordan series. It really gives you an insight of how drow society is, especially within the city of Menzo Baranzon. You get yeah. to really see how the males are treated within that world and how that matriarchal, that extreme, you know, matriarchal society would be when their spider, when their queen, their deity of worship is a chaotic creature through and through. But wow. So what ends up happening to the daughter? Do you know? So she eventually goes, she joins her mother in the dark sledger and she becomes, she, she becomes a patron deity of the drow as well, but in a more light uh, aspect, she is providing a sense of hope there so yeah she's providing this like sense of hope she's like a beacon of hope um kind of the one deity in the dark sledron that's not trying to like mess with or torture or you know do some sort of like messed up thing to their followers so did she well obviously when when she took the form of uh of the tenari of, of a queen of a spider did her daughter take a form or was she just left as I think is? she left i think she was left as is i didn't see anything that he forced her to change now again okay. she has the immutable form so or the mutable form that of the elven pantheon so she could switch herself into she whatever, could, yeah. she, whatever she liked but from what i've seen koyon essentially removed that from wolf and was like you are spider she can morph herself right but it's not a permanent change to her form like it was before where you could kind of flip back and forth then what's the difference then between the original mythos that you know and the mordekainen's mythos then because so, i know it does change a little bit here so the morning you've explained uh yeah the mordekainen's mythos is that essentially um corleone had a fight with grumsh loses the fight bleeds a bunch elves were created from the blood they then have these shape-shifting abilities where they could kind of similar to the gods present as male female non-binary do you know a whole bunch of things right well lolf her ambition was to have the elves sort of be the dominant race of the universe and they and she saw the humans the dwarves the no the uh, you know gnomes things like that in their solo forms doing more than the elves were doing because the elves had this sort of mutable, almost like we're reaching for the ethereal, and that would can't be you know truly known. And with all that, she saw that as a um, kind of a uh, sedative to their ambition. So she encouraged all elves to forsake their mutable forms to push for the domination of other realms. Well, all the elves agreed because she at the time was basically the queen of all the elves. So all these elves are like, yeah, let's forsake that. Let's, you know, our queen wants us to do it. Let's do it. And he is obviously mad. Corleone, that is, is mad. Yeah. He was like, I did not, one, didn't even intend to create them, but two, how dare you for make them forsake that which makes them mine. They're mutable, like the ever-changing nature of the elves. And so he gets mad and basically kicks her he's like i'm gonna kick you out lost like whoa let's have a talk about this a curse occurs again with the scabbard thing he try she attacks him while they're having a debate essentially and then like gets just again beat up by the whole rest of the pantheon and then is exiled and the elves who followed her in this sort of Plan, becoming the drow the drow and yeah. so that's to answer your question that's the drow mythos for morning canaan for 
the original mythos, it would similar to that. It's like the elves that supported her in this large attack against the Saladrin make the drow. The drow then are pushed into the Underdark. I'm surprised about how much of this I did not know. I knew some, like for instance, I knew the creation of Loth, but wow, to see like the rest of it like flushed out in front of us here. Guys, cannot recommend these uh, these DM uh, one sheet pages. They really help break down kind of the gods on the side there. Speaking of which, let's break down some of the uh, the gods there on the sides. Again, you've established it really well here, uh, Brewmaster Austin. So just to give uh, everyone a quick little overview here, we do have the greater gods, as you mentioned there. Right. Uh, the members of that are Corleone and uh, Agar... I'm uh, going to butcher it. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying that. Yeah. <laughs> so that remember, that's the trio goddess. That's, that's the, trio the trio goddess of like of so, you know so Moonbow and Aradine and Halalal. The three of them, yeah. yeah. Three of them together. Forming Optimus Prime. I got you. <laughs> Basically. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> we and, also have the intermediate gods here. Go ahead. And, uh... Yeah, so we have a few intermediate gods. Again, um, uh, you'll see a couple of them. Like, so Adrian is there. Uh, Hanali is there. Sahani Moonbow is there. They're obviously all now one deity. So mm -hmm. my understanding is that they now Agnorang, the, the actual formation of the three, controls all of that. Are they still formed? Did they never split back up? or did I, they? Just... I didn't see anything that says they split. So okay. my understanding is that they are all there in a collective consciousness um, that forms this more powerful entity and that they still control those various areas that they once controlled. So like Aradine was the god of wind, weather, uh, the Arivel and Arakakra, the flying bird race. Um, Hanali was romantic love, beauty, joy. And Sehenin Mumbo was the goddess of the moon, dreams, mysteries, secrets, journeys, and even the protector of the elven dead as well as the patron of moon elves. Um, and moon elves being more a spell jammery kind of thing, but they do exist. No, oh, well, they they still do kind of exist even within the regular lore now. Right. There's a lot of like so there's a there's a the lot mountains. there's a lot of them. I could keep going. I mean, there are ones to the the aquatic. Yeah, so the mountains, the rivers, the wilderness, trickery, snow elves, snow elves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a hunting archery. One that I did find that was very interesting um, is at the very bottom. So you had to scroll all the way to the bottom of the demigods. There is Tethryn Valade and or uh, Ver demigod Ver of blade singers in swordsmanship. Right, and I think that that is just kind of getting off the topic of the lore for a second would be so cool because for those of you who don't know, blade singing is a wizard subclass. It was typically only available to elves for the longest yeah. time. Tasha's kind of removed that barrier where if you want to allow it, you can. But I think it would be super cool. To have, you know, your if you if you're doing, let's just say, a human, just to make it easy, uh, you're doing a human that this human was basically through a dream instructed to learn the art by Tethryn Veradale to solve some sort of problem on Uravandor and is now battling this sort of the madness that comes with it yeah. because he's not an elf. So that madness of the plane still puts it's in there, going but he exist. is being, but he has been charged by this like holy mission to do it. So I just really thought it was really cool that there is a god of blade singers within the Elven Pantheon, um, and it's it is very very cool. I love even some of the other demigods that you have found here, Alathrain uh, Dranra, linked with runic and conjuration magic. Uh, you talked about demigod of the earth and fire magic, Darahala uh, Fire Cloak. Uh, you have the two. Twin Solars, again, those of you that don't know, Solars are basically 
as, as close to an angel as you can get. I think archangels. They, yes, exactly. In the, in the Judeo-Christian sense, they are Gabriel. Yeah, yes, 100%. But uh, they're worshipped by sun elves, you mentioned here as well. Yeah, sun elves. And yeah. the interesting thing, so this is a tidbit I didn't put on here, and this is for you true D&D nerds out there, is that they're... You had me at hello. To the best, <laughs> to the best of my uh, recollection, there are a limited number of solars. I think less than twenty um, within the whole D and D verse, and Corleone has two of them. Wow! So and, there, and there's a lot of and there's and a there, lot of right. There's a lot of pantheons, a lot of gods, and there are two serving one guy. So that just kind of shows you the sort of power. And so I do want to talk about the difference between the mythoses and the pros and cons. So the original mythos that we were talking about with the big battle, um, you know, and Lolf's betrayal and all of that lends itself to that elves were created already, like Corleone created them as like, you know, an extension of himself and blah, 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 right? Because it was a, it would have been an actual creation mythos. The Mordenkainen is like an accidental creation. It's his, it's his discovery. Those of you guys that, again, we don't know that uh, Mordenkainen is, is a... Uh... A wizard. Was, a, was a wizard, yeah, a wizard yeah. I believe, out of the Faerun setting there. Yeah. Uh, that has, he's got some spells. And yeah. Stuff. But that's how you have like Mordekainen's, like, you know, Tomb of, you tomb know, of Foes, there's the Planescape, Guide to the Planescape, all that Yeah, stuff. there's a million stuff right there. And a lot of it is dedicated to what that Tasha's, uh, for instance, Tasha is a, is a witch that right. exists within that setting as well. Right. So he accidentally stumbled upon this knowledge through what? Interviewing yeah. different soul arts. <laughs> Saying, hey, yeah, I knew him really there. Uh, here's what I want. I don't know why Mordecai sounds like a New Jersey guy now, but he's right. just sitting there going, hey, how you doing? Here's what we need from you. <laughs> Again, the big difference between the two of them is obviously the creation mythos on the elves themselves and like kind of how the battle went down or what the battle was. I think the one of the reasons I don't like the Morning Canaan one is that it shows it was an accidental creation of elves and the fact that the reason Corleone is so mad is that Lolf convinced the elves who were made from his blood to not change their form anymore. And I think it makes him sound almost childish. And when you see all of the alliances he's made, because I listed a lot of them and I left a lot out, but you can see all of these interconnected points, all these portals to other uh, celestial realms, all of these connections to big pantheons, um, even the two solars serving him. Someone who is that hot-headed and childish all the time would not have this amount of allies there's just it's just not no it, so it wouldn't I make think, sense i think the original mythos especially showing his temperament to punish Lolf as the grand architect but then only exile his son and let his daughter choose you can see what they did though in the creation of this myth though right there's a lot of judeo-christian right Hey, hints of here and there. It's it's he's the good guy. They're portrayed there, or right. Mordecai like, does kind of put a spin on it, right, which I kind of it. like. Yeah, right. it's so it's interesting for sure, and I think it, you obviously have to take it into with a little bit of grain of salt because Mordecai is writing from a biased perspective. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily know where the rest of the lore comes from, so you know it could be that there's a little bit of a skew. It could be the you know elven you know revisionist history right so you can make it interesting within your campaign i just personally don't like it because it kind of moves over how important um uh, you know the forming of the tri you know the tri goddess uh, you know arenda is you know it, it doesn't and it doesn't portray corleone as a chaotic good god i don't think in the morning canaan verse i think it makes him seem thought, like more 
kind of chaotic neutral. Yeah, really, he kind it of seems like spell. an overreaction. It yeah. really does, right? And so I just would not think that that would be the mythos, and it is not the mythos that I use in my games. No, I like I like the original mythos. The original mythos to me is something that I I feel like I just bond with. Well, does this exist within all the settings and within the Greyhawk Dragonlance setting and things like that, or does it shift from a very to very? I mean, I'm looking up some stuff right now as we're speaking here, and I'm seeing it does seem to be pretty strict within Greyhawk a little bit yeah. and within Forgotten Realms a little bit, but I know it can again shift yeah. depending again, on where it's you kind of, this is so this is the this is all from the Forgotten some of it most of it's from the Forgotten Realms wiki and stuff like that. The the stuff on 5e is kind of the culmination of a lot of older stuff. So Ebron yeah. obviously is a very old setting Greyhawk. They have 5e iterations of it right now, but it was 4e and 3.5 originally so with that this is sort of like the bonding of the lore from a lot of different planescapes so if you want to make lore um you know a very central part of your campaign of the players needing to uncover what's true and what's revisionist i think it would be very easy for you to say like some of the bits of the saladrin's war was from greyhawk and might have been mutated a little bit might have been overwritten might have been changed yeah on its transference to the forgotten realms like whoever brought it here whether by scroll or by arcane divination or something like that so what else would you say that is is more unique about the elven pantheon i mean i think what makes them interesting to me at least on, on my end of it right they have been around for so long at this point that the elves so hang on hang on let me let me describe to you what i mean here worship tends to affect a deity right different avenues of that worship and how that comes in and again the granting of power can come into play does that change their views or are these creatures so immutable to change at this point that they're no longer you know morphing their ability i know we talked about how corleone does enjoy that the fact that the elves were able to change and mute their form and become trees or become light balls of light or again immutable in the sex uh, aspect right. so i think uh, I don't think there's as much of a power fluctuation with worship on the Elven Pantheon. Again, going to what I was saying before, I didn't find anything specific on it. Uh, maybe I shouldn't look in the wrong places, but that elves are constantly being reincarnated. So there's really not a destruction of you know the Elven soul. So it's kind of like your power is always there. So I did find, however, that there is actually the first confirmed um, half elven deity a for a true half elven deity not a deity that the half elves worship like a true half elven deity uh and that is uh kalashar it's in the lesser god section it's an aspect of malakiki uh which is or malakai sorry uh which is of the Faerunian pantheon uh i believe she's part of the uh the worship towards nature right correct yeah correct yeah look at that yeah so she's the big worshiper for uh for instance uh, dresda mm -hmm. yeah i believe he worships her so there is a that's the first sign that maybe the Saladrin might be evolving a little bit to incorporate some half elven deities when they do exist yeah. or when they are created or you know someone rises to divinity or something like that so great potential boon reward for like the closing of a campaign your half elven sorcerer or fighter or whatever is then promoted and achieves a status of the lesser gods of the pantheon that's it is so now cool the second half true and now would be the first true half elven goddess in the sense of like they are a half elf mortal that ascended to it and not a, an elven deity and a normal you know a, a 
human deity, quote unquote, having a kid and it being half elven, right? Then, yeah, this would be you actually being half elven. So you can really see how that would be a very interesting move forward for the Saladrin. Um, because that's the o- that's the only one that exists right yeah, now, and they're ancient. I think it's, po- it's possibly one of the most ancient races right. out there uh, that exists for the uh, deity worship and things right. along that nature. I I find the ascension factory that you just talked about there to be the most interesting thing. Like you see it in uh, I know, for instance, within the Iron Kingdoms setting, there were two twins that uh, became deities, mm. and they they again they found a way into you know godhood. One be, uh, being this uh, almost a light and dark type of thing, but not uh, dark in that that type of essence. More of like the the as uh, the what is good about the darkness, right? You have light, obviously, uh, all its benefits, and then darkness being kind of it always people think it's the antithesis, but in this case, it kind of goes hand in hand, it's two sides of that same coin. But I find the that evolution factor, a creature that can rise up to that occasion, critical role does this well. The the matron of ravens, former human that be uh be, well, we don't know if she was human or not, but we do know she was a mortal right. that ascended to the seat to of, the, of of the death, right? Uh, to to the prime deities. Right. So it's really cool to see that mm. factor here. Um, is there anything else then that is is very they they've had their hands within everything, right. I assume. And right. And I think, it, it, yeah, it really they they're yeah. all over. And I, yeah, obviously that would kind of explain all their allies. But obviously, with a lot of allies comes enemies, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, the the Unseelie Court has some beef with them. They roll in through those portals, so those portals are not one way. And they've from time to time roll in through those portals and create. Um, you know, Havoc trying to like get slaves from the celestial Aladrin that are still there. So those are the Aladrin that ha- did not forsake their forms and are still mutable. Um, back so not all the Aladrin not all the changed. Aladrin. Okay. From what I can tell. Um, again, it, it, it's kind of piecemeal. Uh, but, <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it, from what I can tell, there are still celestial Aladrin that can mu- mutate their, their their appearance between, you know, genders, non-binary, that kind of thing. Right. Um so the, the Unseelie Court has been known to try to like take slaves because obviously a creature that can change its sex, it would be for the slave trait, a very valuable asset. They are looking to do that. And they're often driven off by obviously knights that, of you know, Celestial Ladron that are knights, but also the petitioners of uh, various souls that might come to Aravendor to try to, um, you know, live out their time as a soul in within this world so a way for them to earn that is to defend the realm against these unsealing incursions could that also occur then based off mortals that decide to worship the elven deities it could yes those would from my understanding would be uh, the the petitioners uh, would be anyone non-elven or maybe an elf who had been disgraced and is trying to earn their way back um, sort of thing those would be the ones that would be petitioning for it and a way for them to kind of accelerate that process um, would be to fight, defend against the Unsealy incursions and, and do all that. Another enemy, um, obviously, that was mentioned uh, a little bit uh, is Grumsh, the, the orc deity. Croyon uh, doesn't like orcs. Yeah. Doesn't like any of them. Yeah. Doesn't like any. He has a big gripe with orcs. He has a big gripe with the Dark Saladrin, obviously, you know, Lolf, um, with the only exception, obviously, being his daughter, Elistrae, like, because he's, she's, you know, doing doing her thing you know she she has a whole purpose for it um 
the some other just random enemies uh, would be uh, any of the goblinoids. He kind of puts them in the same sort of realm as the orcs, uh, as well as Bane, Malar, Talos, and Siric, all deities that are very murderous, very um, barbaric by a lot of terms, um, or have uh, seek to cause uh, you know violence for the sake of violence, sort of thing. Um, but beyond that, it doesn't seem like they um, interject themselves too much into the governing of elves or the governing of their own realm. They kind of leave it to their like vassals or those people, the lesser deities. So like the intermediate and greater gods themselves, those like 11, 12, you know, deities, um, they kind of do their own thing. They kind of do the whole uh, Greek gods chill on the mountaintop sort of thing for most of the time. Um, I love that idea of just a bunch of elven gods going, hey, what did you do today? I don't know, bro. <laughs> yeah, real. I mean, really, that's kind. From the best I can tell, they don't interject themselves too much into governing their own realm, or really too much into the affairs of the mortal realms themselves. Because, again, now obviously that isn't to say you couldn't find a way to make them interested. Like if you have someone who's corrupting elven souls and taking them into the nine hells, Corleone gonna have something to say about that because you know those whether either creation mythos those belong to him permanently. So if you use the blood mythos, that's him. So obviously he doesn't like that. If you use Morning Cadence, right? If you use the original one, it's like these are still his children that he created for a purpose. Don't touch that. So he does still have yeah. that fatherly aspect to it, but his retribution for something like that, as you've seen with the original mythos, can vary depending on how much the slight is. Yeah. Um. Other than that, Austin, do you think that the elven deities their worshippers range as well, correct? Like they, it's not just like all the elves worship every single right. one of these right. deities, right? So I'm, I'm like doing my own research here, and I'm seeing that a lot of this stuff can be depending on classes, right? Like rangers. Again, we've talked about this before right. in our uh, religion based episode, but again, you know, worshiping a yeah, a lot of rangers will definitely um, subscribe to the Saladrin because there is a big emphasis on nature. Obviously, they live in the plain this, known as the high forest. Can this also vary from like basically a high elf to a wood elf to... Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. 100%. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, there is still... Even though I feel like high elves and wood elves are more close to the line. They're a common than, bond. Yeah. All elves even, you know, uh, are, are still a common bond. That's why the Saladrin... Um, is, you know, when I mentioned it, it is the elven word for brother and sisterhood of the forest. Mm -hmm. Like they understand, there is still an understanding at the base or should be an understanding at the base that they're all from the same thing. Obviously, you can create some very clever um, conflict with that, having an elf who maybe doesn't see a wood elf as kin. But for the whole, they do see themselves as kin. They see themselves, there is a very close connection with nature, which is why uh, certain clerics of nature deities maybe even if they're not related to the elven pantheon might see the elven pantheon as like an ideal or something like that uh rangers would definitely be it uh some druid some druidic circles would be um supportive of the elven pantheon like circle of the moon would be a really that's great a one. huge one yeah or uh sehani mumbo which would now obviously be Araring. Ang Harinda. I'm uh, never going to be able to say it. You could say uh, eight line Ang Hangarinda. Uh, yeah, but sh they would probably, a circle of the moon would probably worship them, right? Yeah. Because like it just makes sense. So like you said, it's not limited. They're for everybody. And it, they do, from the best I can tell, seem to be a general 
motivation for good and a celebration of a lot of like art, beauty, um, and elegance, things that we all kind of attribute to elves generally in, in just fantasy mythos. Their beauty, their 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 radiance, their joy, and even their darker their skill, side. And their skill, yeah, the yeah. darker side. The darker side, that's what the drow exists there for. Every coin, everything that is perceived in the light has a darker shadow. It's, it's kind of the way that I've always looked at it. And the last thing that I want to leave you with is now that we've kind of connected it all together, shown you the plane, shown you the major events, a few of the notable locations and things like obviously there's the palaces and, and all that, which I'll let you go and dig the lore out on there. Aren't some of it's on the one sheet, but a piece of lore that I included on the one sheet that I thought was very interesting that in Hanali, so one of the deities again that formed the tri-deity, um, in her palace, uh, it resides uh, within uh, this very crystalline palace in a lake. It is uh, said that that is called the Evergold, which is known as the Fountain of Youth. Oh. So, so again, going back to why elves are always timeless, even if you were to be an old elven spirit that might be finally withering away, you could then be baptized in the Fountain of Youth and be reborn. And then be, re be reborn and then given that life anew. Exactly. Uh, elves are cool. Elves are cool, man. Even, even though I, you heard me talk about it before, I will always play a half-elf, but... I don't know what it is about sometimes just having to be like almost that dignitary mm -hmm. or that emissary. Hello, my name is Falafala, Falafala, right? It's just, it gets, tends to be a little exhausting. But remember, I'm representing them only as Scots in our uh, campaign. They're going to be Scots. They're going to talk about the beauty of the Blade singing elves. <laughs> I like the leg shaking, by the way. The addition of the leg shake there. <laughs> Guys. Thank you so much for joining us here. We covered this topic, lovely topic of the Elven Pantheon here. You know we're going to do the dwarves. We're You know we're going to break down the subclass options. It's coming in the future. I cannot wait. Our brewmaster Austin here cannot wait. Other than that, thank you so much for joining us here on this episode of Dungeons & Brews. And as always, part of the pod, part of the brew.